Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Alex Koritz, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Thanks, Bill. Doing well. How are you? Good, good. Glad to have you on. Uh, it's been interesting. Uh, you approached me a little while back suggesting that uh, that your story might be of some interest to my listeners. And I, I have to tell you, Alex, I looking over the outline that you and I have put together, and I'm just really excited to have this chance to sit down and talk with you. It sounds like you've just got a lot of experiences in your life, but I wonder if you might start us off just by giving us maybe just a brief bio about yourself, and then we'll jump into to talking about your story. Yeah, sure thing. And, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity and been, as I'd mentioned, a big fan for, for years. And I, I love what you're doing here. So, um, so this is great. Yeah. So quick bio of myself. So, um, born and raised in Utah. I am currently a, a partner at Method Communications, uh, which is one of the fastest growing PR firms in, in the nation right now. I'm uh, headquartered here in Salt Lake, which is, which is awesome. And we have offices in San Francisco and LA. As well, so part owner in that company. Um, done most of my career here. Um, grew up here, uh, other than my mission in in your home state. Uh, I've I've kind of stayed stayed around here. Um, so that's quick overview. I can sort of tell you a little bit about my childhood and have that kind of head into the the narrative here, if, if if that's what you want me to do. Let's let's do that. Let's jump into your childhood and and. You mentioned here that you're the grandson of Elder Milton R. Hunter, and so I wondered if maybe you could give us a little background of your childhood, but also give us kind of an idea of what it's like to grow up. Uh, the grandson of, and, and, and for the audience who, who doesn't know who Elder Milton R. Hunter is, maybe explain that and, and help us uh, kind of get a feel for, for what it was like to, to be a kid in, in, uh, in the experiences that you had. Yeah, absolutely. So the older generation remembers um, Elder Hunter, but, you know, folks folks our age, not as much. But he was um, in the presidency of the First Quorum of 70 in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And that was back when the uh, when the quorum was small, so it was a bigger deal then. And he, he was really well-known because he wrote a lot of books. And he kind of pioneered, even before Nibley, he pioneered a lot of this Book of Mormon archaeology um, studies, if you will. He was the co-founder of the of the New World Archaeological Foundation. I may have messed that acronym up, but that's still running today. Um, mostly focused on Mesoamerica and South America, but some stuff in North America as well. So very well known as a general authority, but also among intellectuals and scholars because he wrote a lot of books. And he died two years before I was born, so he died in 75. But, you know, I'd always felt this really weird thing. I've always felt really close to him, and my middle name is Milton, so I'm named after him. And I, I have a twin sister, and when my mom was pregnant, she had this real spiritual experience that, you know, kind of told her, in, or a feeling or, or whatever, that he had specifically picked me as a spirit to come down in this family. So I've always had a real tie um, with him, but 
never actually met in this in this life. So so that's my mom's family, and then her. Her uh, great-grandfather was Archibald Gardner, if you've ever been out of in West Jordan in the uh, restaurant there. It, it's that family and lots of descendants here in Utah. Um, Polygamous, of course. I think he had nine wives. Um, and then the wife we descend from actually ended up uh, divorcing him and, and then um, moving away, which is interesting when you read about the history. It wasn't this contentious thing. It was just sort of like... She asked him, and he said, sure, yeah, that sounds good. And, you know, she kind of left. <laughs> so, interesting. I and mean, when you go to that restaurant today, there's one room where you can eat, and there's um, portraits of all the wives in, in one room. Not sure if you've been there, but it's interesting. Um, and my dad is a convert. Um, the Quartzes are all from Illinois. And um, my dad joined the Air Force. He had met these, these these young men that were good at sports and, and cool, but didn't swear and drink and he asked them why, and, you know, then they, they kind of had him from there. And he joined rather qu- quickly and served a late mission. He served in his 26, so, which, you know, they don't really let you do that anymore. So I had this mix of, like, pioneer ancestry, kind of Mormon royalty in some ways, and then converts on the other side. And and the the other courts family, we, didn't, we weren't real close to them because they thought we were crazy Mormons and out here in Utah and whatnot. And I know you're a convert, so you, you get some of that stuff. Some of your family. So my parents were, were very intellectuals, um, but very faithful. Um, they didn't, uh, you know, they encouraged reading and studying, but very faithful. I mean, they wouldn't like it if you criticized the brethren or said something like that. And, and even to this day, they're, they're just very, I, would, I don't use the word strict because they're, they're open-minded, but just, just very faithful. And, and, in some ways, um, even politically, they've gotten a little more liberal. It's kind of been interesting to watch that. But still, you know, on issues like gay rights, they're still a little, a little traditional. You know, they, they, they go back to the, well, it's their trial in this life kind of, that gives you an idea of the type of, the type of Mormon. Um, but great childhood. So I, you know, even as a kid, 10 years old, 12 years old, I grew up reading my grandpa's books about Book of Mormon archaeology. Um, one was actually titled that, and one was titled uh, Christ in Ancient America. So, like, even as a kid, like, I mean, we're talking 10 years old, I had just this love for the Book of Mormon. And archaeology, and in, in my mind, it was Central America. You know, Guatemala, Mexico, that's where I wanted to go. And I literally, as a kid, and just constantly, I prayed that I'd go on my mission to the Book of Mormon lands. That's all I wanted to do. And so, you know, life passes, normal high school experience, and pretty good kid, didn't didn't drink or anything in, in high school, and had buddies that did, but stayed pretty straight and narrow. And then when I got my mission call, you know, I, again, I prayed for years. I just want to go to Central America. And I opened it up, and it says Ohio. And so I was, I was kind of bummed and you know, but I, I eventually came around. It's the DNC lands after all, anyway, right? Most of the Joseph's revelations kind of stemmed out of Ohio. So I came around, went on my mission, had a great experience, um, mostly in Columbus and Dayton. So what, like two hours south of Sandusky, I guess, two and a half hours or so. Beautiful, beautiful state, as you know. Um, falls, gorgeous. Cardinals, we have flashes of red in the trees and just breathtaking area. And 
So uh, my mission there, I'm still sort of, you know, obsessed with Book Mormon and archaeology. And I would see these mounds. And Ohio has the Hopewell and Adena civilizations. And they're the huge mound builders, right? And Ohio's kind of one of the heartlands for these mound builders. And I remember my first area going to a big mound, and I saw a sign there that said, you know, Hopewell civilization, 400 B.C. to 480. It's like, wow, that that's like Book of Mormon timeline. And I know that's all in Central America, but it's cool just to, like, see a mound. These people were at least alive during the same time. So, you know, and time passes, and I was out in Newark, and there – and we went to a museum one day, and these were near the Newark um, mounds, which are famous, a World Heritage Site. I mean, just gorgeous, miles and miles of precision um, precision mounds with lunar and star alignments and everything like that. So I went to this museum there, and there, they have these things called the Newark Holy Stones, which are found in the mounds in the, in the late 1800s. And they have Hebrew writing on them. So immediately when they came out in the 1800s, they were controversial, right? Because traditional scholars, you know, Jews wouldn't have been in ancient America. But um, on one of them, the Ten Commandments is written all around the stone. And then there's a figure with sort of a, a Middle Eastern-looking figure with a beard. It says, it says in, in Hebrew, Moshe or Moses right over him. And then the other stone said it says roughly holy of the holies is what the other stone said so now i'm thinking man I, I, this is crazy and i even studied some of it and some of it was is controversial we have some scholars saying like no we've we, we've dated these things this is legit and then other scholars say no it's got to be hoax but you know i came around in my mind just intellectually like well you know maybe some nephites had wandered this far north you know who knows i mean this is this is still really cool stuff so you know, I end my mission, have the full mission, absolutely loved it. Um, two of my, really three of my best friends today all stem from my mission. So even if I didn't get one spiritual thing out of my mission, I, I, I took home friendships. It was just an amazing experience. Um, so I love that. You know, I come home, two of those uh, friends I did, I met on my mission. We became roommates and went to college and did, did the college thing and went from the uh, UVSC, or it was UVSC, it's Utah Valley University now, um, up to the U a little bit. And then I ended up getting married to, to a great gal, a traditional Mormon family. And, you know, we went up to, to Utah State to kind of finish finish her schooling there. And then we were married about four years, and, and some stuff happened. Just, just I, I don't really want to go into it exactly what, what happened here, um, just out of respect for her. But... There were some things that happened that made the marriage just not doable anymore. I mean, you know, trust was broken. It was just, it just wasn't going to happen. So, uh, I, so this was, I was probably about 26, 26 or 27, and then I ended up divorced. And so here am I, this single guy again, and, and kind of almost cliche, just kind of this, this a little bitter and kind of, at the world and you know i did everything i was supposed to and went on a mission married a girl in the temple and you know what the hell why did this happen right and so i decided okay well, let's try something different i mean that didn't work so for a while i started just specifically dating non-member girls i started drinking and just kind of like i i'm not going to live like a mormon for a few years because why not like it didn't work before so I kind of, you know, lived that way for a while and 
it's always, you know, whether it's psychologically ingrained or just the, the spirit leaves, I don't know. But it, it's always like, at least for me, was a little uncomfortable. I, there was always something that just in the back of my mind saying, you know, you know, this isn't right. And again, I'm not that could just be psychological or it, it could be spiritual. I, I don't know. So, Alex, I want to I want to jump in for a second. I want to ask you because a couple of things you said really, really interest me. One is these newer holy stones, which as you're talking, I'm pulling out my iPhone, I'm looking them up, and I'm seeing pictures of these things. They're really cool. So I would certainly suggest to the listener to just go look at the Wikipedia page and some of the Google images and stuff of these newer holy stones. And and I want to kind of maybe move in and out of your present thinking as well as where you were at at the time. When you saw these stones in Ohio, and, and I want to talk to you as well about serving a mission in Ohio, which, uh, you know, as you pointed out, is where I was born and raised and spent the first uh, 36 years of my life in, um, these Newark Holy Stones, you explained that when you saw them, you know, you had to make some changes kind of in your understanding and make room for the Nephites to have been up in Ohio when you had, pre- you know, when, when you had at that time thought that the Book of Mormon completely took place in Central America, the Nephites and Lamanites stay in that area and there is no, there should be no Hebrew outside of Central America, and yet you see this on these Newark Holy Stones, and you have to make some adjustments. I want to maybe pick your brain where you're at now today. What are your thoughts on these stones? Do you think now that they're they're just a hoax, or or do you think we just don't have a good explanation for them? They don't really – they're kind of a um, anachronism in a sense yeah. that they shouldn't be there, but somehow they are there. What are your thoughts on that today? Yeah, yeah, really, really interesting question. Um, you know, if fast forward today, I think, you know, I've, I've studied these. I've read actually books that contain, um, oh, sorry about that. I, I've read, uh, books that contain, uh, what they call them sort of out of place artifacts, right? Um, whether they're dated weird or cultures are showing up weird place. I think they're genuine, um, because I've studied it. The, the person that dug them out of the mounds, he was, horribly persecuted after it and people just call him crazy and his entire life he just said look I, I just dug these out of the mounds that's it and he ended up committing suicide because it, it tormented him so much so just just the way this went down i i think i don't think it was a hoax at all um and another thing you study is um as you study this it's a little bit of a different form of hebrew it's called a block hebrew and that wasn't discovered by scholars till the early 1900s. So this guy couldn't have faked it. And and I I just want to point out like this just to me seems ironic, right? That that and again I get it. I'm I'm one of these that uh, I realize there's reasonable evidence to believe against the church and, and and the Book of Mormon. I believe there's you know some evidence out there to believe in it, and and I hold out hope that it's true, and I and I lead my life in a faithful way based on that. So I'm not naive. To whether the Book of Mormon is true or not, I'm, try- I'm not trying to argue that. But what I do find ironic is that you know critics of the Book of Mormon point at these anachronisms that are in the book, things like horses and steel and and stuff like that. And yet, the reality is that anachronisms are are common in our life. That that here are these Newark stones. Not that they're an evidence that the church is true necessarily, but they certainly shouldn't be there. And yet, there they are. And we don't necessarily have a perfect explanation for them. I'm sure, you know, faithful Latter-day Saints, many of them would like to hold this up as an evidence of the Book of Mormon. It may or may not be, but it certainly is anachronistic in that they don't really belong there, and yet here they are. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's several other, I mean, there's other artifacts that sort of fit into this. And so when you take them in the aggregate, um, like you said, it's, it's not proof. So where I kind of, where I kind of stand and, you know, we can, we can keep talking through this, but it's not proof of the Book of Mormon, but it makes the Book of Mormon more plausible than once thought by scholars. And you, you kind of look, okay, so the world of archaeology is kind of in turmoil right now because there's, there's two camps. So there's traditional camp, which is isolationist. All cultures developed independently. They didn't trade. They didn't cross the oceans. Any um, similarities you see are coincidences. And then there is the diffusionists, which, and this has nothing to do with being a Mormon or not. So diffusionists that think, no, the, the ancient oceans were highways. These, these people traded. We see cultures crossing all over. Um, there's just evidence on every continent of, of different cultures. Um, there is a Harvard professor. I think he, I think he just died, but his name was Dr. Barry Fell. And he wrote a book called, uh, America BC. And again, not Mormon at all, but he documents, he documents Hebrews here, Romans here. Um, even, and if you study ancient Michigan, there's, uh, there's copper mines up there that date to 3000 BC. And there was about a billion ton of copper taken out of there. And scholars have no idea. Um, where it has gone. And guess what? It shows up in Turkey, in ancient shipwrecks. It shows up in Egypt because copper has almost a DNA signature. You can tell exactly where it came from. So there, so there's this fight between scholars that, you know, diffusionists or isolationists. And for what it's worth, they, it's in the news now. They just found a, a Roman sword up in Nova, Nova Scotia. So sort of this new generation of archaeologists are becoming much more open to that where the, where the old school aren't so much. And it's interesting. You, you kind of see this play out a little bit in, in the Mormon thing as well. It is. It's really interesting. And in a, you know, it just, I find it, you know, almost funny that, and I don't mean this in a humorous way necessarily, but that there's so many of us as Latter-day Saints who, I know Mormons have left the church over the anachronisms of the Book of Mormon and, and yet just a story like this should kind of slow us down and say, look, not that, again, not that the church is true or isn't, Book of Mormon is true or isn't, that, that we're using these things as like, you know, solid proof of one way or the other, but rather that anachronisms are just normal, you know, it's just, that happens. We, our, our understanding, our knowledge is limited. As that knowledge and understanding increase, we're going to find that things happen differently than we thought they did. And whether we're talking religious knowledge or scientific knowledge or discoveries that happen, it's, it's just, that's just a fact. Um, I do want to touch for a moment on, on your marriage and, and not necessarily get into the reasons as you point out. I don't think that's healthy to do. But what I do want to know is were, were you and your wife, were you both members of the church? Were you, were you both kind of both feet in and, and did, did divorce in some ways kind of shake, shake kind of that black and white way in which we see our lives? I know when, when I got married, my, my mom and dad are still married and they would have, they would have some serious fights when we were growing up. And I remember thinking to myself as a kid, like when I get married, this is all going to work out fine. I mean, my marriage is going to be perfect. And I think we all kind of hold that naive belief when we first jump in. And, and I think in some ways the church teaches us that if we stay close to the gospel and we do the right things, that's what happens. And I think regardless of the reasons that when divorce occurs, it does sometimes shake 
Um, it does some kind of, sometimes shake kind of our orthodox paradigm. Did did some of that happen uh, when that happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. And my faith crisis didn't happen here. That happens years later, which maybe we'll get to. Um, but it, yeah, it. I mean, it it rocks your world, right? Because there was more of a bitterness that just kind of crept in, like I said, where. It, yeah, I, I did it right. And this is what happened to me. So I'm going to try something different. And so those were, that kicked off years of rebellion. Well, let's see what drinking is like. Let, let's see what dating non-member girls and then everything that goes along with that. Let's, let's see what that's like. Cause the other didn't work. And so I felt a little almost betrayed, almost betrayed by God and just disillusioned and just bitter. And like I said, it's almost cliche, but. There you go. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it completely rocks your foundation. Right, right. So, so now you're kind of spending some time. I don't know. You, you can tell us whether it's in or out of the church, but it sounds like it's out of the church and it's, it's spending some time away and, and kind of maybe testing what, what a non LDS life looks like in, in all of its various angles, not necessarily sin or good or bad or right or wrong, just, just not necessarily constrained by that framing. And, and maybe share with us what some of that journey looked like, some of this, uh, some of this, this experiencing life outside the church and what all those tangents are. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I still was relatively young. And I think that was a big part of the, the problems of the marriage was just getting married too young. But, you know, it, it's funny because once you kind of step out of your, your bubble and you enter the normal world, you start to realize now, we were the weird ones, meaning Mormons. We were the strange ones. The rest of the world is normal. To, to have a drink at dinner, that's, that's normal. I mean, there's nothing innately wrong with that. And, and frankly, not, not to be too graphic here, but people that date for long periods of time, they, they sleep with each other. That's just normal. So Mormons were, I, I start, I looked at it in reverse. I just realized we were the odd ones. And this, this stuff isn't bad. This is just, how 99% of the world is. So that was kind of a paradigm shift. And and then I would, I made more friends that weren't members and then got into my career where, you know, I'm surrounded by non-members as well. And, and that's the biggest paradigm shift. I think you realize like, you know, the stuff you thought was, was so evil growing up. It's not, I mean, that's, that's normal. And we were the abnormal ones. Does that, does that make sense? It does. It does. Absolutely. It's, in, in my own life, being a convert to the church, I think helped me kind of avoid that step. And I, I kind of recognized right away that, that my family, which are made up of drinkers, made up of people who use bad language, made up of people who make various choices in life, that it is, it's just life. And that, that I didn't all of a sudden join the church and like judge my family to be evil. Rather, I just recognized that we all live a life based on our understanding and, and everybody's different. And there isn't necessarily this absolute right or wrong in terms of drinking coffee or drinking tea. Rather, each of us are constrained by our own cultural rules that, that are placed upon us. Exactly. And that's the advantage you had um, by being a convert and, and coming in a, a different way. And then, and then in history, I started discovering, well, you know, Joseph and Hiram drank wine in Carthage jail right before they were killed. And Brigham Young owned liquor distilleries in Utah. I mean, not that long ago. He owned them. 
them outright as a business. So you start looking at the word of wisdom, you're like, this can't in itself be a sin because the prophets were doing it. And then you look at, you know, temperance and why the church really embraced it. And then you start to really question, you know, how how bad is this really? And even to this day, like, I don't I mean, I don't think having a beer is a sin. I just I don't view it that way. I view it as potentially dangerous. You can do dumb stuff, right? But I don't see it as a sin. I don't see it like that. So as as time kind of goes on, I mean, at some point here kind of coming in, there has to be kind of some reevaluation of where you're at in your faith. Uh, I know I know in kind of putting the the ideas together for the outline that that there was some point here where you kind of re-engage Mormonism. Maybe kind of give us an idea what that looked like and what some of the experiences were that came with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I picked up a book. Uh, it was called This Land. It's written by Wayne May, and he's the publisher of Ancient American Magazine, which is all about diffusion, ancient cultures that came to North America. And it's a secular magazine. He happens to be LDS, but this magazine is not LDS. So, But he wrote this book for an LDS audience called This Land, and it was the the Heartland Theory, which, you know, isn't – necessarily the Great Lakes theory or the whole, um, you know, all the Americas, North and South. It's it's sort of the heartland um, with the Great Lakes incorporated, but it's much closer to what Joseph actually said it was. Camorra is in New York. Um, he pointed to other sites. There's Zelf, where he had a vision that they dug up a skeleton in a mound in Illinois, and he said this was a Lamanite, and this is one of the last battles of the Book of Mormon. And you know, Heber C. Kimball and Oliver Cowdery, they all have these quotes about, like, North America. I mean, when they went and first taught the Indians, the Fox Indians in, in Pennsylvania and Ohio, they said these were the Lamanites. And then I started looking. So I read all his books, and then he goes into a lot of the archaeology. So let me give you another example of one of those strange artifacts. There's one called the Bat Creek Stone. And it's, it was found by the Smith, Smithsonian, <clears throat> Smithsonian Institute in the late 1800s, and, which is ironic because they are, they're kind of hardcore isolationists, right? This, this, uh, different camps we were talking about earlier. And they found this, this stone with some carvings on it and they put it in the museum there and they called it Cherokee writing. Well, about, you know, 50 years later, some scholars were looking at it and said, holy crap, this thing's upside down. And so the, you turn it upside down, and it's Hebrew. And again, it's this block Hebrew that wasn't uh, discovered till you know, early 1900s. And it says for Judea. And this was found in a mound in Tennessee. So there is – so I just – and then the Hopewell culture, the way they did the mounds, and some of them were defensive, and there's this high level of civilization and math. And I just started looking at North America as it making a lot more sense than – than uh, Central America. The the animals fit better there, right? You had Nephites following strict um, the law of Moses, and you have sheep that aren't native to Central America. Central America, you have America, you have America, you have wheat, whatever animals, but they're they're all native to North America, so it just starts to fit better. So, and then DNA, which today I've kind of thrown out, but there is a the haplogroup two, which is a Middle Eastern DNA, shows up in these northeastern tribes of Indians in the in the US. Um and it, it so 
there are tribes that have Middle Eastern DNA and not just Asian DNA. But it turns out today that I've kind of thrown that out a little bit because that DNA came in about 15,000 BC, which, of course, is well before the Book of Mormon times. But anyway, it just got me excited about the Book of Mormon again. And, you know, I consumed all the material coming out of that. And I just started kind of started going back to church, dating different girls, going to singles ward and, and just engaging a social scene there where I just kind of slowly led me back. And, and in coming back, I know that there's there's this idea, too, of kind of re-engaging with some of these difficult issues of the Mormonism. And, and I wanted to get your thoughts maybe at this point in your life as you're kind of encountering the tough issues for the first time one by one, what that was like or what your thoughts were and, and how you handled those at the time. Yeah, so it, and, you know, going back to my mission, too, I was given a ton of what, you know, we call anti-Mormon material when I was in Ohio. So I felt I had worked through all the difficult issues. Um, you know, I didn't care that Brigham Young said there were people on the moon, like that stuff, that stuff just didn't really bother me. So I was a fan of fair and there was no real challenge to my faith that, that, uh, you know, it, it didn't really bother me, but, um, I started to see, <laughs> I guess, new material and, you know, I, I'll just be specific. Um, so the book of Abraham, I hadn't really examined that and, you now have Egyptian scholars looking at the papyri that Joseph purported to translate, and they just laugh at the translation, right? So you just cannot say that's a translation anymore. And, okay, then, you know, some apologists say, well, it was a catalyst and for the revelation for the Book of Abraham, which is, which is possible and very well may be the case. But I, I'm starting to see now the church isn't quite what it claims to be, right? And then... Peep stones and the book and the translation. That one didn't bother me a ton. Um, in some ways, I think it's kind of cool. Like I want a peep stone, right? <laughs> but what bothered me is how the narrative was told to us, right? I mean, people people feel lied to, and that's why. And then um, polygamy. You know, most of us have known about polygamy, but re- what really got to me was polyandry. That was tough. In the idea where Joseph would marry other men's wives and sometimes call them on missions. And then the, the, uh, you know, Joseph marrying 14 year old girls. I mean, I, I have a daughter now and I just, oh, that's tough to work through. And evidence points towards it being a physical marriage. I mean, that, that's really tough, right? I mean, even if it was a marriage ordained of God, it's just that, that, that was really tough for me. And then, um, Really sort of the, and we talk about this shelf where people put, you know, tough things on a shelf. And so it was elastic a little bit, slowly started to, to bend. And what really broke it for me is I have a really, really good friend, one of my best friends who's gay. And he came out, um, to me, you know, years ago, cause I was kind of more the, the liberal group of friends, right? So it was the first one he came out to and I saw the hell he went through. And I just knew nobody would pick this like he, he was born this way. Like and then, you know, I started just followed his journey. And, you know, like you've talked about, I just can't see a God that would that would care. that would just care about that and, and really ask somebody to be alone the rest of their life and never experience love or affection. I just can't. That just doesn't make sense to me, a God that would do that. And so when the new policy came out about, you know, 
children not being able to be baptized if their parents are 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 homosexual, that just cracked the shelf at least. It may not fall through, but the the shelf was was broken. <laughs> that that's a tough one. Right. And and these issues do that. I mean, when you start to really dig into them and you realize that, hey, I was taught this one narrative and all of a sudden these things are just much messier. It certainly can be it can be problematic. I totally get that. Um, I, I want to hit on, too. I mean, this is kind of this idea of where you're at with church stuff. But how do you reengage within your own life? I mean, personally, with the church, you leave all these kind of just kind of set these issues off to the side. Where do you? Where do you go with your faith and where do you go with your personal life? It, it's tough and, uh, you know, it's a process, right? So in, in this time, I, I got married a second time and, you know, it was, marriage was good for, you know, for a few years and we had our challenges. And our challenges weren't even remotely related to my first to my first marriage. But some of the challenge was was faith. Um, I just she was pretty straight arrow and I would say things like, you know, I would, why don't we just, instead of paying tithing, let's just give it directly to the poor because I, I don't feel like the church is doing that very well. There's a Business Week article that talked about, you know, church, I can't remember the numbers, but giving 1% to the poor while the Methodists gave 27%. That really bothered me too. So that was a shelf cracker for me as well. So anyway, it started to cause contention in the marriage. And, and then I felt like, well, okay, I, to keep the peace, I can't really tell her you know, what I think about religion. And then I just got bottled up and, and then we just, <laughs> we, I, and you've, I know you've done podcasts on mixed faith marriages. That's tough. It is really tough. Um, particularly if this, this spouse is, is your best friend, right? And you can't talk to him about the innermost parts of your soul and, and how you see God and, and how you're dealing with religion. That, that's really hard if you can't talk about it. So, Anyway, we, for completely unrelated reasons, that marriage ended up not working and I've, and that is, that's just ending right now. And so I've, I've come to the realization clearly I'm not good at marriage or I'm quite unlucky. I don't know. <laughs> or both. But anyway, that played a big role in that not working. Right. And I, and I, you know, I recognize that. I think that when, when a husband and a wife, uh, in their marriage, when when you're trying to make things work and marriage is hard enough as it is and then all of a sudden you've got you know two people who are differing in their religious stances uh, it just it just makes things really tough and and I always say whenever I talk about my own relationship uh, Alex I always talk about this idea that I was I'm I'm very thankful that I had a spouse who who not necessarily agreed with where I was at but empathized enough to let me have that space and was willing to hear me out and, and, and I, and I, not right or wrong again, just not everybody's in a place where they can do that. And, and it does make a marriage really difficult. It does. And I know lots of cases where, you know, the mixed faith thing was just, it, it kills marriages often or, or sometimes the spouse will just stick through them and, and, and love them. And, you know, I, I look at if Christ were looking at that marriage, the thing he would want is for that family to stay together, you know, even if you don't go to church anymore. Right. It just it's sometimes, you know, people can't see the forest through the trees and it's it's frustrating. But it but it is what it is. And so I'm faced with this this choice because we can keep talking about it. But my faith right now is is more of a hope 
Um, you know, I hope the Book of Mormon is true. I, I, I hope some of this stuff is true, but I, I don't even, I mean, I don't know anything. And so it's a really nuanced faith because there's stuff about Mormonism I love. I mean, the pre-existence and deification, you know, over the eternities becoming divine and, and becoming like Christ. I love that stuff. So I, I think Joseph Smith was so visionary, but then there's these other problems. So I have a real nuanced face. So now, now I'm faced with this problem. Okay, my boy, is, my, my boy Xander is three. So in five years, he's going to want to get baptized. So, I mean, do, do I make sure I'm in a place where I can do that? And when he comes home from church and asks these, these simple questions or shows a picture of Joseph translating the plates with a sheet up and not a peepstone, do I tell him what I really think? So these are kind of the challenges that I'm faced with now. And, you know, there's, there's a part of me that wants to just, like, write a book. So one day my, my kids can read exactly how I feel about things. But, but it's tough, right? Because then you create cognitive dissonance in your own kids. So I don't know. No, it is. It's, it's a difficult thing that I, I'm up against every single day. I mean, there's times where my kids, I want to have conversations with them about where I'm at, but they're just because of their age and the way in which they handle information and just because of their development, that's not where they're at. And so you can't have, you can't have the conversations you sometimes want to or even feel a need to have. You, You just, it's just so messy when, when you see the world so different than what you did years ago and trying to at least brace your kids for that without crushing their world. Um, where are things at in your, like, as far as career and stuff goes? I mean, where, where, maybe take us a little bit through your life and in terms of where you're at in your career and how things are going there and, and any other things that are going on maybe on the periphery with your, with your family as kind of these experiences are going on. Yeah. And one, one, <laughs> one kind of important thing I totally left out. Is while I was reengaging with the gospel through, you know, Book Mormon North America, I, I started a podcast called Mormon Archaeology and then a face, Facebook page. And I would have authors on that wrote a lot about that. Um, sometimes non-Mormon scholars I'd have on that would talk about like, look, there's evidence of ancient Romans in North America. And so I have this, I mean, I fairly popular podcast and, and Facebook page for a while. Um, probably about a year and I, I just started to feel kind of disingenuous. And so I ended up shutting it down. Um, I could have tried more of a, a nuanced um, kind of a nuanced faith, you know, it, kind of similar to what you're doing, but it just, it, it transitioned just felt odd. So I shut it down. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I left that out. I thought that was kind of an important part. And, and, for a while, I felt like I was a source for this stuff, and I was doing a lot of good, and and I still think that stuff is fascinating. But I, I didn't want people just to get the I don't want to feel fake, so I ended up shutting that down. So all through my my second marriage, my career really kind of took off. Um, we we started from you know a group of just a few of us in, in Salt Lake City, and we um, we we began with some of the Sorensen companies, the Sorensen family as our initial clients. Um, and if you're familiar with the Sorensons, they own like Sorensen Media, Sorensen Communications, Sorensen Capital. So we had these initial clients that we just we just killed it for, right? And then we tapped into this network of venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. And, you, you know, you, you build a network with them and then they give you a company to, to try out, they try you out. 
And then if, if you do awesome there, they give you more and, and more. And, you know, if you screw up, you're kind of done, right? So we just continued to prove ourselves and, and just started getting more and more clients in, in Silicon Valley, mostly tech, mostly kind of tech and enterprise tech companies. And some big ones in Utah we handle all the PR for is Vivint, Domo, uh, Qualtrics. So some some big brands here. And we we grew into San Francisco where we finally opened an office. Um, today we have uh, about 40 people in San Francisco, um, close to 60 here in Salt Lake. And and then we grew the same way to to uh, L.A. We have about 10 folks there. We've had write-ups on us and some of our campaigns in, in PR week, which is kind of the Bible of that industry. So so anyway, professionally, like things were, were going great and, you know, I'd, I'd never made this amount of money and it was, it, it was great. That, that part was great. But then I would go home to this just really, really difficult marriage. Um, and I, I read this book one time, um, where this guy was, it, it was an article column or something. It was, it was called Thank God It's Monday. Because this guy's home life was so horrible that he just looked forward to going to work on Monday. And one day I just recognized that in myself and <laughs> thought that was that was kind of sad. So anyway, that the career is going well. It still is and still continue to grow. But um, and now balancing that with, you know, being a, a, a single dad. And so that has its uh, that has its challenges, of course. And like we were talking about before. I have to figure out how to live this nuanced faith with my kids. And, and you mentioned, um, you know, when your kids come home and ask things about primary, you don't feel it's, it's, uh, right, the, the right stage to really tell them some of these things. How do we know then that they're not going to feel lied to one day? I mean, do you ever worry about that? Just like members of the church feel lied to because they've been given this whitewashed history. Do you, do you worry your kids will ever accuse you of the same thing? So, in my own life, I mean, I, I inoculate my kids. In other words, what I'm saying is, I don't want to sit and have the conversation with them about how I'm, I'm, I, I have serious doubts the church isn't true. I don't, I don't ever have that conversation with my kids. What I do is, I do talk to my kids about some of these tough issues, just on a real surface level. We, and I've said this before on the podcast, we've had family home evenings before where we built divining rods out of clothes hangers, uh, watched a YouTube video on how people did water witching and. And how they wanted these, you know, how you could make a homemade dividing rod out of a coat hanger. And, and we did that as a family home evening. We've talked to our kids about the translation process. We've, we've talked about, uh, the LGBT policy and, and where the church is and where members of our family feel about that issue. I don't have conversations with my kids where when I have a bad day, I tell my kids, I think the church is false. I don't do that. What I do is sprinkle history and doctrinal conversations in with my kids, but I don't ever let them see deep into my heart on my bad days because I think that that's, I don't think a kid's equipped to bounce back and forth like that. I just don't think their ability to handle information where they are in their own development, that they're capable of having those kinds of conversations and still maintaining their own ability to move forward in the church and faith. They'll just let it all go. And so I sprinkle in history. I sprinkle in conversations about where the church is on policies, but I still maintain with them what they would see on my worst day would be how I feel maybe on my best days, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's great. Inoculation. 
that's that's really really helpful for me because um, I've, I've thought a lot about that and you're right like when we have emotional swings we can't throw that on our kids because we're so influential to them right i mean it, it, yeah okay that right i mean if i if i just go to my kids and say look kids man today i'm just struggling the church isn't true it's not true i don't believe it if i did that to my kids then there's no way that they can bounce back the next day and say, ah, dad thought that yesterday, no big deal. Today's another day. And, and I think the church is true. They're, they're going to be very shaped and molded by, by the things I say in the moment. And I try to keep how I feel in the moment kind of below the surface and let them see kind of the best, the best side of my Mormon self. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that's helpful to a lot of people because they're, a lot of my friends are, you know, divorce aside, a lot of my friends are in this sort of semi-faith crisis and have the same questions. So I, I think that's really helpful. Good, good. I want to, I want to kind of jump into moving into kind of where you're at today. What are some other things that you've encountered? Where are you? What are you thinking about some of these issues that are out there? Maybe what are some extra? What are some well, some things outside of Mormonism that you've explored and and kind of how have all those and I know it's a hundred questions in one, how have all these things kind of shaped you and, and maybe start to give us an idea of where you're at today on these things. Yeah, that's great. And, and if I'm rambling, feel free to just, just interrupt. Um, so I, you know, my, my obsession with history since I was a little kid, it has continued. I absolutely, I, if I'm reading something, it's a biography or something on the Egyptians or something like that. So I continue that, um, one, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched America Unearthed on History Channel 2, um, but that whole premise of that program is focused on kind of this hidden history of North America of ancient cultures coming over. So I still study a lot of that. There, you know, there's an interesting stone in New Mexico that has old, old Hebrew writing with, of the Ten Commandments. And so these, these unique artifacts fo- focused on ancient North American continue to just fascinate me. And I've actually built a, a collection of, of artifacts, um, that I have, I've just kind of bought over the years. For example, so like effigy pipes and, and things like that. So still fascinated by history. It still kind of keeps the magic alive for me a little bit. Um, but, and it keeps the hope, right? That, that hope that, you know, I don't know if the Book of Mormon is true, but man, it, it's, it's possible, right? So I, I have a hope there. And then I started studying a lot of near death experiences and became fascinated by them. And I got several books that just had, you know, hundreds of experiences compiled. And, you know, as I read these, like I would feel the spirit like I used to and just reading, reading scriptures and, and, you know, if this, so this one book has, you know, a hundred near death experiences of where, you know, people die and then they see certain things and come back. If, if only 10% are genuine, that's like, that's like really valuable information, right? That's more valuable than an enzyme talk. I mean, I'm, that's better in general conference, right? So I started being just obsessed with those and I would go through and I would find find parallels of of what are the common themes. So and and actually Mormonism stacked up pretty good. So all of the near death experiences, for example, talk about a pre existence. We we chose this life, we chose certain challenges and we came down, uh, may have even picked certain families, like boom, like Mormonism does great there. Um 
the idea that you know there's not necessarily a heaven or hell there's just different different levels of degrees or vibrations is how they kind of talk to them I and mean, that kind of jives with with mormonism so and then some things don't at all right they you know, a lot of these experiences come back and say it doesn't matter what religion you are it's just a path to the divine take whatever path you want you know and if there's a unifying theme that all these experiences come back they say all that matters in this life really is that that we love each other that we're kind when you meet your maker or master he's just he's going to ask you one question how did you treat people were you kind and that that's all the god or christ or buddha that that's all that they're going to care about and so everything else is just sort of footnotes, right? So I continue to read a lot of those, and there's tons of studies and books and documentaries. It's a whole field of science now, right, this NDE thing. And I view that as valuable as, as the Bible to me or a general conference. I mean, I think this stuff is valuable information if it's, if it's real, right? And they've done studies where it's real. I mean, for example, they've had certain markings on the floor, certain numbers that you could only see if you're floating on the top of the ceiling or from above. And when people have reported near-death experiences, they, they identify those features. Or they'll talk about a conversation that they are, are witnessing in another part of the hospital. So anyway, tons of evidence for it. So I got into that. And then, you know, you had a podcast with um, a blog about love, um, that, that wonderful couple. And I just I love their philosophy. After after I listened to that and um that that was the that made a big impression on me and I've been a fan of their blog ever since. And uh so, you know, I tried to just start I started focusing on, you know, I I can have a hope that the Book of Mormon is true and I can have that magical mystery as I walk the mounds of North America, but I'm not going to know. But one thing I'm pretty convinced on is that there is an afterlife and love is the only thing that that really matters. And that's what I try to focus on. And I've gotten into, you know, folks like Wayne Dyer. Are you familiar with Wayne Dyer? I, no, I'm not familiar okay. with him. Kind, kind of a new agey writer, but focuses a lot on, on love and actualization and uh, um what you think about expands, right? So to be happy, you really have to think about positive things. Or if you're worried about losing your job every two seconds, like that might happen, right? So there's real power in that, I think. And I read this, this book, um, called Autobiography of a Yogi. And it's written by a yogi in the early 1900s. And that, that was a paradigm changer. So, these yogis, these Eastern masters, I mean, they had, they also raised people from the dead, healed people, healed the sick, healed the blind, healed the name. So they have their whole tradition, the same kind of stuff going on in the Eastern civilizations. And so I just started to look like, you know, God can't care about one specific truth. He's clearly like working and blessing with, with everybody here. And then Buddhism really, resonates um just this peaceful kind of love people go through the journey together and so yeah, i think i kind of have like a a mormonism a buddhist type mormonism with sort of some um values poem pulled from near-death experiences is kind of how i view myself right now um 
I'm really comfortable with that. I, I have a lot of peace with that. Um, I stay open. I stay really open to Mormonism. Um, and, you know, I'm just focused on loving people and, and being kind and, and being a, a good leader at work. You know, people, people don't realize that we spend, geez, like 80, 85% of your days at work. If you're going to affect change or be a leader of people, man, that, that's where you got to do it, right? You're only spending 10% of your day at home. So if you're discounting your workday where you can make a difference, then you're really kind of missing the missing the the boat there. So I try to be a good leader and and lead in a Christ-like example and um, yeah, I mean not religiously, but just try to be kind and and bolster people and and uh, put ego aside. And you know if if uh, you know there's a thing that that talks about good leaders surround themselves with people that are smarter than them and. They're not threatened by that. So I kind of have that kind of philosophy at work, and, and it's worked quite well. Um, I'm still kind of plowing through this second divorce, and it, that's that's painful because you go from you know being a dad. I mean, you can imagine, right, being a dad every day to being kind of a part-time dad. So it, it's painful, but you know I try to hold on to these things and, and realize that there's probably an afterlife and – if we're kind and love each other, then all this uh, other stuff, you know, know, the Book of Mormon and potentialities and, and Book of Abraham, then that's just interesting and icing on the cake if it's true. And if it's not, then, you know, I think I'll be OK. So that's kind of my nuanced thought right now. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> kind of rambled there. Yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely. And and I really value, I mean, I'm certainly connecting to what you're saying because a lot of that speaks to my own experience. But this idea of having to let go of certainty, like you say, you know, I just, I hope it's true. I hope it is. And and I think apologists in the church and some who, you know, want to defend it tooth and nail, they're not really comfortable with that. When when you let go completely of certainty and just say, look, I I think maybe there's an afterlife. I, I kind of, you know, I don't know if the Book of Mormon is true. There's evidence against it, but I hope it is. Uh, you know, I, I, Jesus may be historical. He may not be, but man, he sure with the story about him, the narrative about him is certain, certainly, uh, worthy of emulation. I, I, I hope he's real. I hope there's a real atonement. Uh, I think when you let go of certainty, you become much more capable of, of meeting the person next to you where they're at and being empathetic and being able to put your arm around somebody and help them and to understand their issues from their own shoes rather than trying to impose what you want them to be or where you need them to get to from your perspective. I just think that one of the great things of going through these deep faith transitions and coming out the other side is we're just, and I say, you know, we, I've certainly got a lot of work to do and a lot of ways to go, but you get to a place where you're just much easier to talk to and to, to confide in and to work with from those who hold a different perspective than you. Like you just, it doesn't, it doesn't bother you as much. You, you don't, you don't place the importance of somebody on whether they agree with you or not. It just, it makes a huge difference. And I think it's a hard thing to do. Um, I, I think why people like to be confined by rules and guidelines and, you know, what a prophet may say, it's safe, right? It's comfortable. And I, I think it, it's, it's kind of fearful to be, to stay open like that. Um, but on the other hand, like 
I kind of don't understand people that don't. And to be so certain now that these things aren't true or, or not open to any of these other evidences, I, I mean, why? Why not just stay open and just be interested by, you know, some of these evidences? And, and it helps you take anger away, right? I mean, with the, with the homosexual policy, I went from anger to now just like hoping and anticipating that they're, they're going to come around. Um, but it's still, it's still, it's still tough. It's not easy. <laughs> no, no, it is. It is good to have that hope. And, and, and once you shut yourself off, once you think, Hey, I've arrived. I mean, those guys, that's where I used to be, but those guys are wrong. They don't have anything left to offer me. Then, then you're essentially back into the same position you were in when you believe those things. You just have a different set of beliefs now, but now you've closed yourself off again to new information like you. I mean, I know, I know that there will be some who will say that I've, become pretty staunch where I stand, but I disagree. I'm, I'm constantly reading things. I'm constantly reevaluating what I, what I believe, what I think. I'm always willing to kind of let go of something if, if good evidence comes out to, to squash that. Uh, the things that I don't have certainty of one way or the other, I'm, I'm holding out, you know, more of a faithful, positive hope. Um, I, I just think it's messy. And I think the moment you start thinking you've got it all figured out, you're, you're kind of stuck again. Yeah, I, I think you're, that's absolutely right. And I know you've talked about the, the Fowler stages of, of faith. If, if I recall, that's toward a, that's kind of the latter levels, right? Is kind of what we're talking about, this openness. Um, and it's, it's hard, but yeah, it's, you know, people flip from being so conservative and faithful to, to the opposite. And it's just, I don't know. I, I think it's the safety thing. People like definition. They like certain walls around them and, and they're comfortable. But I think you have to push back that, that, uh, you have to push through that phase where it's un, where it's uncomfortable. And, and then you start to see the, the beauty of openness and, and, and learning and, and taking truths from different traditions and different, different thinkers. And I think it's just a much happier way to live. Yeah, yep. Where's home today for you, Alex? So I am in. I'm living in Draper right now. Um, the the kiddos are in Kaysville, so I'm. I own a townhouse in Draper, which I may sell or not sell, but I'm going to have to buy a home, um, North Salt Lake or Bountiful area. So that's sort of all in process as well. But uh, yeah, we'll call Salt Lake home. Gotcha. So you're in Utah and. And, you know, you're talking about serving your mission in Ohio where I spent the first 36 years of my life. For the, for the listener, maybe just to give them some, some idea maybe to put in their head. For those who are from Utah, I mean, you see mountains, you, the colors are, are much more tan in a lot of places. I'm in St. George where there's like three colors in the entire city. Brown, tan, and gray. And that's everything. And, uh, Ohio, but, but there's these mountains, there's these differences in elevation, there's these differences in, in, you know, up and down and seeing these gigantic mountains in your view. And, uh, and yet Ohio is green and there's all these colors, like even the houses, like Ohio, you can walk down a street in Ohio and you'll have a red house, a blue house, a green house, maybe even a purple house. Uh, you'll have brick homes and sided homes and all this variation. And where I'm at in St. George, it's like all stucco and all these three colors. And, but Ohio's flat and Ohio is, uh, it doesn't have that kind of elevation. Now, where you were at in Columbus, there's a little more hills and things when you serve there. But up in Sandusky, where I'm from, and I mean, it's just as flat as can be. Maybe your thoughts on the two areas is I'm just getting a chance to talk to somebody who spent some time in Ohio. I, I don't miss the green and the color and the flatness yet, 
Uh, I'm still kind of in awe of the mountains around me, but uh, maybe your thoughts having spent time in both places, uh, some of the things I just talked about. Oh, I love that question. Um, yeah, I mean, the mountains, I mean, it's hard to, I, I mean, it's kind of apples and oranges, right? But they have their own beauty, but, oh, I loved Ohio. I was able to, to take my son back to the, to the Midwest in Illinois where my dad's from, um, this summer. And I was so excited for him to see fireflies and we went out on the lawn and they, it, 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 and this happens in Ohio, all the Midwest and, and lots of the East, these fireflies. And when dusk comes, these little blinks of light kind of rise out of the grass and they're like these little stars over a lawn. And, and my, my son thought they were so magical and just, just walked around and tried to grab them and just was awed by it. And this is a three year old just being awed by it. And there's just a real magic. So I absolutely, I would almost trade mountains for fireflies. <laughs> You're right. I, you just struck up a memory with me. I, as a kid, I mean, every summer we would get the, my mom would, you know, we'd, we'd have pickles in the fridge. And when, when my dad got done eating the pickles, cause he was the one in the house who would eat these things, my mom would clean out the jar. We would take the char, jar, we'd take a, a, like a steak knife and poke holes in the lid. And we'd go outside at night when all these fire, and I'm talking like you point out, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, they're just fireflies like crazy. There's one within four foot of you every single blink of the lights. And, and so we would catch them with our hands and we'd put them in the jar and put some grass inside the jar and, We'd stick them in our room for the night and let them just light up our room. And then in the morning, we'd release them and let them go. But, yeah, they're amazing creatures that you don't get out west. Now, the other thing you don't get, at least where I'm at in St. George, I don't get the mosquitoes. So it's kind of a uh, a positive and a negative trade off. Yeah. Well, speaking of mosquitoes, the the, the lake. So if um, you know people do not realize, if unless you're standing on the shore of one of the Great Lakes, whether it's Michigan or Lake Erie, you don't get it. These things are massive. You cannot see the other side. They, they just look like the ocean. And just, and you grew up so close to, to Lake Erie. I mean, those are fascinating and there's, there's nothing in the world like it, right? Um, and then even in the flat areas, um, you know, in the fall, these, of course, the trees are just gorgeous. I mean, just a palette of color. And then you have these soybean fields that turn gold and it just looks, you see this miles of just, just gold and then, and then colored trees on top of it. And it, it's just so pretty. And the rivers are different. They're not fast flowing rivers. They're big, slow ones. But on our mission, we would always take the trails going to appointments that ran along the rivers and it just cause it was so pretty. And you, and the cardinals are just gorgeous. They're these, Flashes of red that just fly in and out of trees, and we don't we don't get those in the West. And I was um, I was in Ohio in October, and again my obsession with history. I went to to see the uh, the snake effigy mound down um, past Chillicothe, pretty far in the south. Um, and it's the Adena culture, which matches perfectly with the Jaredites, right? But anyway, as I was going down there, it was rainy, and southern Utah has rolling hills and it was fall and it just it's breathtaking it just takes your breath away so the good thing about um the world i guess is there's different different beauties right whether whether it's mountains or stuff that the west has or oceans or lakes and there's very few places where well i can think of a few places but <laughs> most places have something beautiful right yeah, yeah, and we we may be a, we may have been the only two enjoying the last five minutes of conversation. I I guess I'll finish maybe saying this. You know, I I know that I'm no longer certain 
there is a God, although I have a very strong, deep belief that there is. And, and if there's a God, he created a really beautiful earth with all its variation. And, uh, and, and, and Alex, I just, I just want to say, I appreciate so much you being on today. And even, even for just a little thing of reminding me of, of a little bit of Ohio and, and a reminder of the fireflies that, uh, that was kind of a spiritual moment for me as you were talking about that. I, uh, just want to maybe wrap up saying that, you know, it's an interesting journey that you've, you've gone through having gone through all of that and come out the other side and have this kind of position that, you know what, I've had to let go of my certainty, but man, I, I sure hope it's true. I really hope the listeners can hear that and, and, and understand where you're coming from and kind of the journey that I've had and, and really cling to hope, hope in Mormonism, hope in good, hope in God, hope in, in a loving savior. And I just want to appreciate you bringing kind of that idea back to our remembrance and, and appreciate you being on today. Well, thanks so much, Bill. And you're a, a big inspiration in my life and you're doing, you've, you've got so many people that are following what you say and, and the guests you have on. So thank you for all the work you do and I'll, I will continue to listen. Awesome. Thank you.